the legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of maestro John Williams. Hello everyone, this is Maurizio Cascato and welcome to a new episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Here with me, my friend and associate, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim. Hey, Maurizio. Good to be back. You all right? Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Happy New Year to you and to all the listeners of the Legacy of John Williams. We are very happy to be back to discuss more about Hook, the Ultimate Edition. And to do so, today we have three guests to discuss in more detail, the fantastic contents of this magnificent Ultimate Edition release from La La Land Records of one of John Williams' most beloved film scores. We are very happy to welcome back our friend, soundtrack producer, Mike Medicino. Hi, Mike. Welcome back. Hi, Maurizio. And hi, Tim. And uh, good to see you guys again. And yes, I'm back for more. You too. We are very thankful for the time that you are generously spending with us lately. And I am sure our listeners are also grateful so let me just first say thank you for being here to talk more about Hook and John Williams. Hook is certainly the stellar release that all the fans of John Williams were wishing for, and we want to give it the special treatment it deserves, also in terms of podcast discussion. So as we agreed with Mike, we wanted to let the music speak for itself at first and leave as much surprises as possible to the listeners. Now that everyone has familiarized with the new set, it's time to go a little bit deeper and discuss in detail the new presentation. And we're very happy also to welcome back two returning guests. First is film music writer John Takis. Hello, John. Nice to see you again. Hi, everybody. It's really great to be back. Hey, John. Our pleasure, really. Great to have you here, especially because I, I remember many years ago, and I'm, so, I'm sure some of our age will remember your excellent uh, awfully big adventure writing you did for JW uh, Fan many many years ago. Oh yeah, that that goes back a while. I, I consider that juvenilia. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do, but many many of our age will remember that writing because I mean you know we all in the internet's infancy we all looked to that article with great fondness, you know. Well, we we've certainly come a long way then since then, and and learned quite a bit in the interim. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, we all did, John. So it's great to have you here once again. And the other returning guest is a friend of the legacy of John Williams. He was here with us as guest last year in the episode discussing the Lost World and Amistad soundtrack releases. He is a longtime member of the John Williams fan community and a co-writer of the beautiful liner notes together with John and Mike of Hook the Ultimate Edition. So let's welcome back Jason LeBlanc. Hi, Jason. Nice to see you again. Hello, Mertio. Good to see everyone. Nice to see you again, Jay. Um, we are happy to have you guys here with us because we know how much this film and this score mean to both of you personally, and, and we'll get to that today. But first, I want to give word to Mike and pick up from where we left in the previous Hook discussion. Uh, so, Mike, the last time you chronicled the overall genesis of the project and its long time in the making process, uh, given the whole background of how it all came together, we focused on the brilliant third disc program 
presenting for the first time all the songs written for the project and how it was designed as its own musical journey. And now, talking about the score itself on disc one and two, we can certainly say that this is one of John Williams's most ambitious and longest score in terms of sheer scale. You mentioned the last time all the challenges it posed in terms of putting back all together. I mean, you painstakingly recreated the new program going back to the original tapes and using all the correct takes, all the inserts and all the last minute revisions to give us a pretty definitive presentation of this score as John Williams originally intended. So did it all come together naturally once you got all the materials in hand? It sort of did. I think that, you know, what you touched on before when you were speaking with John about um, the online information that he put together all those years ago, um, that I think speaks to the era in which we found ourselves once the internet became a thing in the 90s. I always feel, I think we maybe mentioned this in a previous discussion, how about how the Phantom Menace, when John Williams went back to Star Wars, was kind of a flashpoint for kind of codifying the existence of a fan base who wanted to dig deeper and figure things out in some very complicated scores. And now the internet existed as a forum in which that could take place. Prior to that, probably Hook was the one that was the most expansive, the one with the most sort of unanswered questions and um, things that needed left to be figured out. Um, John, would you agree with that? Yeah, there was a certain mystique about it. You had this general awareness that the project had undergone some pretty significant changes. We knew from various interviews and reporting over the years that it had been uh, conceived as a musical, that there were these songs. I remember personally just speculating, you know, with all these melodies, what were the songs? What were the lyrics? We knew that the the film had undergone some revision. So there, there were all these pieces of the puzzle out there. And as you say, it, it hit kind of at the right time. Uh, for it to become a, a big topic of discussion among the fandom. Um, right. I mean, it didn't have the, un, and like Home Alone and Jurassic Park, say, two other big, huge hits, by comparison, yeah. didn't have as many unanswered questions about it. No, so. it was it was fairly clear cut. You had the scores, you heard it in the film, you had the scores, you heard it on the album, certainly plenty of, you know, fruit for discussion, but there wasn't quite the same amount of... Uh, parsing over over the details and again asking these big big questions just based on everything that was that was floating around out there and trying to take that and and put it into some sort of yes. coherent picture. Yes. Right. So the point being that once we got into the 21st century, the internet now became a place that routinely you would go for information when you're starting a project just to see what's being said out there and so I would, you know, right at the top of the list would be the information that John put together. And Jason, you did some too, I think. So there was a lot of starting points. So it was a natural thing to me to have the, both of them on when we were going to now do this properly. So just to make sure that it was thorough, that we were going to include everything that should be included and placed where it made sense and that we were accurate. And it was just helpful to have other eyes and ears on it who were really, truly invested in it. So it was really kind of, to me, part of assembling the uh, dream team. But there were some routine things just uh, of the natural course of comparing the film to the album and uh, lining up the takes and whatever. And, you know, we had the starting point of the uh, elements that had been used for the previous release and then the uh, massive undertaking of 
Sony finding all the original tapes and bringing them into California and lining them up end-to-end -end in chronological order so that we could actually see for the first time everything that uh, had been recorded for the movie and, and go from there. And then, as I said last time, you know, it eventually reaches a point where it starts telling you how it wants to go and you're, you have the limitations of the running time of a compact disc to factor in. So that's where the organic part of it, I think, comes in. Maurizio, uh, because mm -hmm. it, yeah. it does take on a life of its own after a while. You live with the music and you have to kind of yield to its power. You, you kind of just know instinctively when it's put together that it's right. It reminds me of you putting together the uh, bonus disc for Sabrina, kind of making that into its own concept album, which came out earlier, but you did <laughs> having already done the same thing for Hook first. Yes, yes. But uh, that was a case where we had so much of that party music all brilliantly recorded and um, arranged by John and his orchestrators that I just thought, well, could we really present all of that? And it just lent itself to, hey, how about let's just do a, a party disc? And it, it yeah. just uh, yeah, it just came, came out beautifully. So you got two albums for the price of one with that one. Yeah, and, and it's the same actually in this occasion, too. Let's say again that it's quite a journey to go through that third disc from beginning to end and see how there's somewhere lies in an alternate universe, a, a musical version of this film and how it could have been using our imagination because that's one of the many powers that John Williams' music has is to evoke in our, in our minds Im specific images, specific pictures, but also feelings. And since this is meant to be personal today, you know, uh, sharing our intimate uh, connection with the music and with the film itself, uh, I'd love to share with you guys this experience concerning Hook. I distinctly remember, very much like it was yesterday, the day when I found a soundtrack album in record store here in Milan. It was, I think, early 1992. You know, the film was still to be released in Italy, but the soundtrack album was already out, and I was there in the record store together with my brother. You know, it was uh, one of our many... <laughs> wandering around record stores <laughs> in the city center of Milan and going through the soundtrack section we found mm. this beautiful looking CD cover of Hook you know with whatever money we had at that moment we were able to buy it and then rushed home put on the CD and that beautiful opening prologue track starts and that was probably one of the most powerful John Williams experiences I ever had in my life and, and still is for me because of course, I knew about the film, about what it was. I saw pictures in movie magazines. I was eagerly anticipating the movie. But I didn't have any specific expectations to the music itself. So when the prologue music started, I, f I started to picturing things of, you know, sailing ships and pirates clashing swords with each other and waves crashing into the hull of the ship and, you know, with the beautiful cymbal crashes. It was the most beautiful adventure music I ever heard.
limited power of John Williams' music to evoke images and to evoke scenes in your mind, even if you haven't seen the film itself. So that music for me was the epitome of pirate adventure music. And you know, I do remember also trying to figure out if that could be the main titles of the movie. Back in the day, I wasn't aware about the fact that that was the actual trailer music that John Williams wrote for the original Hook trailer. So I imagined, wow, what a beautiful main title sequence this will be. But instead, when I saw the movie for the first time in theaters, I was very surprised to discover that actually the film opens with this very beautiful lyrical haunting almost solo piano with a Tinkerbell theme. And it was actually the track two on, on the soundtrack album, the piano intro to the song, We Don't Wanna Grow Up, and feeling that, wow, this is different. And that's also the, the beauty of John Williams' score for this film, is the fact that it starts with the simplest and the purest of the instruments, solo piano, and it goes through this whole journey toward the end where you have this beautiful, magnificent symphonic orchestration of the childhood theme. And wow, what a journey. It's like the ultimate journey, not the ultimate war, but the ultimate journey, it, it's, it's terrific. And I remember, I think we, we talked in the last episode, Mike, how uh, beautifully programmed it is to have that exit music restored at just that perfect moment in the end credit uh, suite. It's, it, it works just beautifully. I remember the, go back to the trailer, that I had just moved to Los Angeles that summer of 91. And I believe I saw the trailer at the Cinerama Dome ahead of Terminator 2. I know going back earlier into the um, 60s, you could find movies that John Williams did where he did separate trailer music. But mm -hmm. from this one, I don't remember what the previous one to that would have been where he actually composed special trailer music. This was a new thing to me at the time. I think it was like 1941. I think the yeah. last one before that. Right. Okay, so there you go. So it was a while. So that so it was to me that was a very exciting thing to see that great trailer with the map and everything. And the, I had the album ahead of the film. Just really fell in love with it immediately, just because of how tuneful it was. Um, yes. And then it ended up being at the Cinerama Dome for an advanced preview that uh, December. And there was a powerful sense of it being a big holiday event that ended up being, I think, very very special for younger people who actually remember that as a kind of a touchstone of their childhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that was me. <laughs> um, I read about this a little bit in the in the piece with the website that was was published earlier. But just to duck back to what Maurizio was saying about how captivated he was popping that disc in for the first time, hearing that prologue music. I think this really speaks to the almost supernatural ability that John Williams has to just command your attention from the first few notes. 
uh, I never saw the the Hook trailer in the theater like Mike did. I was 11. I was not a frequent, you know, film goer. So my first experience was probably seeing uh, the film itself. But that ability that Williams has is almost unrivaled. The anecdote I like to tell people is um, I don't even remember what film I, w- I was going to see. I couldn't tell you the film. But the theater was playing music beforehand. You know, as they sometimes do, they pipe it in just so that there's not dead air, right? And so you've got a, an auditorium full of people, and they're chatting amongst themselves, as one does before the movie starts. And the theater put on Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter. It was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it, because within seconds, a hush came over that theater. <laughs> there was nothing on the screen. There was no trailer playing. There, was nothing. It, 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 there had been music playing before this. Right. But that John Williams music comes on over the speakers and everyone just kind of instinctively. It was like they were in church or something like that, you know, <laughs> and and I, I'd never seen anything sensitive like. But but Williams has that magic. He has that power. And whether you're beginning your program with the prologue music or that kind of piano solo that as it opens the film, it just from those opening seconds, you're you're just you're spellbound. Right. And he has a way of just figuring out immediately to put you mood-wise exactly where you need to be for whatever that film is. And the trailer music certainly did that, even though the um, not until the Mondo LP that we did a few years ago was it at the right speed. Oh, well, yes. a technical error. <laughs> it ended up uh, slow on the um, original uh, CD. Yeah, that was another major topic of discussion among fans of you know, deciding what the correct speed was and... <laughs> <laughs> something like that because and, 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 the case. yeah this is the kind of technicality that among film score let's let's call us fans not nerds but <laughs> um uh, likes to to go deep into but it also speaks about something that relates to what we discussed in the previous episode the fact that these are decisions made by people creatively then there's always a reason why things are done in a way instead of another so Picking up, as I was saying before, the correct takes or the correct inserts and all the revisions that were done throughout the whole scoring process. was I think a very key thing to to take care of and I think you Jason assembled a wealth of information over the years to know precisely what had to be done correctly to you know to present the score as fans truly wanted for many years well I certainly could have made my best guesses of where everything was supposed to go over the years but it's different from Mike getting the actual full recordings and whatever other information he got to you know really be sure about everything. When we talk about trailers, I think it's worth noting. I mean, certainly I didn't realize that Witches of Isaac was used until I got the DVD back. I think the first DVD release was early 2000s. Hook. 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 Come back to seek his revenge. Only you can save your children. 
You must make yourself remember. Remember what? Peter, don't you know who you are? There was an interesting couple of clips in that trailer, which I know our mutual friend Thomas Robert would be an expert on, uh, because there was some deleted scenes in that. You know, you could see Hook and the kids in like a, a boat. And there was yeah. a few other scenes which, which were cut from the film. So it leads us to the, the question, which would be interesting. I'm sure many will, will want to hear. Was there music which you, you, you didn't include? Or are we listening to everything that you had access to? I can't think of anything we didn't include. Uh, John can <laughs> talk about music that uh, goes with scenes that weren't in the finished version of the film. Yeah, there are several cues on the album that were written to accompany deleted scenes. Um, there's the, mm. the slicing the hand, which was when they first get to Neverland. Uh, Tink is trying to convince Peter that what he's seeing is real, and she takes out her little dagger and she slices his hand. And so you'll see there's a bandage that suddenly mysteriously appears in the film. That survived uh, long enough for Williams to score it. And then part of the track called Goodnight Neverland, that cue um, originally was was written for the end of, of Peter's first day in Neverland. And it was longer. There was dialogue with Tink and Peter. I'm a middle-aged man living in the 20th century. How can I believe I'm anybody else? Believe your eyes. Believe in fairies and lost boys and three suns and six moons. Find one pure, innocent thought and hold on to it. Because what used to make you happy will make you fly. Will you try, Peter? If all this is real, is the rest of my life a dream? <laughs> and in the final film, that sequence got moved uh, to the second night in Neverland and the part of that scene was removed. So that cue is longer on the album than what you'll hear in the film. And then, of course, there's the unused exit music. But no, I am not aware of, of any cue that was written and recorded that uh, that Mike did not, you know, fold into this this assembly somewhere. So Terrific. Yeah, and this speaks, again, as I was saying in the introduction about the sheer scale and volume uh, of this John Williams score. I mean, this is certainly one of John Williams's longest and most ambitious score. Probably only Return of the Jedi or one of the more recent... Star Wars 
uh, sequel scores or even one of the Harry Potter films is comparable in terms of number of hours of music recorded for this film and number of notes <laughs> written for, for a single movie. And the other aspect of this score that truly is absolutely essential to point out is the sheer number of themes and leitmotifs in this score. I mean, we know that some of those were generated as songs and now we have a very complete picture of the whole process that brought all the beautiful melodies that John Williams used all throughout the score. But I think in the sheer number of themes, there are so many. I mean, did you guys ever try to chart out all the themes that are found in the score? We did. I think some, well, these guys did do that. I remember the emails. Going, <laughs> I, I did back in the themes. day. Yeah, I don't and remember I thought, the, the exact <laughs> count, but I, I think you're right to use Return of the Jedi as a point of comparison. I think that's that's really the only thing that might rival it. And there you have him building on, you know, two previous films worth of themes. True, yeah. I would say there's 12 major themes in the score, six that are based on the song melodies and six that are original. Um, but then there's some even more ideas that are used. Yes. I guess you'd call them minor motifs that you know occur in at least a couple cues. And maybe there's another six of those. So it's incredibly thematically rich for sure. Yes. I think there's one or two cues in the whole score where that doesn't feature one of those themes. It's impressive. Yes, we were saying something similar in our previous Hook discussion in the sense that the wonderful, lyrical, tuneful qualities of the music are some of its most wonderful aspects. And there's always something happening in every cue in terms of a theme popping up or an interplay between two different themes and how they are weaved together. And the interplay of the various thematic components is so ingenious and and gives to the score a very special storytelling quality that we were mentioning already. And this is something that brings Hook close to the world of, you know, ballet scores or even opera or musical theater. It's truly a wonderful concoction of several different styles and approaches, all brought together so brilliantly by John Williams.
this is probably what sets Hook apart from other schools that he did that are maybe similar in terms of style and language, like Home Alone or the first Harry Potter. And I think this reflects also in how John Williams treated the thematic elements of the school. Well, I think the interesting thing to think about is, okay, there's a lot of themes. Well, what's the main theme? And I think that's another thing some fans have gone back and forth about. And for me, the answer is childhood because it's the one that's used the most often and it's used in a lot of scenes. But if you think about it was supposed to be a musical, well, what's the main theme of a, of a movie musical? Usually it would be a song the main character would sing. And there is no Peter song in the score here, which is interesting to think about. You know, Childhood is, is a Wendy song, but the, the melody is so versatile that it it's used for Peter a lot in addition to his own theme. And it's used for a variety of ways throughout the score. But is um, is Peter the main character? That's the other question, too. It's another good question, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Childhood was was conceived as a Wendy song. I think had the, had the film ultimately been developed as a musical, it's interesting to see where some of these, to consider where some of these songs might have ended up in an alternate universe. I, I, I think there may have been some talk that Childhood could have been sung by Peter if, with some minor adjustments to the lyrics. Shadows, memories, lingering laughter, reach out, touch me, half my life after, glimpses, moments, smiling inside. is called Hook. And one of the things that preoccupied me for a long time when I was thinking about it was, yes, well, what is Hook's theme? Because he has two, maybe three. It depends on on how you, you think about the low below motif, right? come down on that now which is reflected in the notes is that dun 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 that that one seems to be most specifically associated like purely with hook as a character and so that's kind of where i i came down on that but of course stick with me which is um the uh For the longest time, that struck me as his primary theme. But really, that's it's it, it makes so much 
more sense now that you know where that theme originated, right? Yes. Which is, this is Hook, as I say in the notes, as, as we say, uh, is his most charismatic and seductive, right? And you don't hear it until they reach Neverland in the context of uh, Hook's kind of persona being celebrated. I, I think in his in his darker and rawer moments is where you have that other theme, which debuts much earlier. I believe in the bedroom where he goes up, to, Peter goes up to the bedroom, and you hear that for the first time as he's looking at the mural. Yeah, you have a related theme, John, of um, to that other one, right? Which I think we called like the Jolly Roger theme. Right, that was introduced in the prologue. Yeah. The interesting thing about Stick With Me is it also, in the finished film, skews a little bit towards more being about Smee. Yeah. And I liken it very much to the um, March of the Villains from Superman, where it feels almost mm. like it's more Otis's theme than Lex Luthor's theme. It's the yes, more, exactly. skews towards yes. the sidekick mm-hmm. because of its yeah. comedic sense. But, but now that we know that it was meant to be a song that Hook actually sings... You know, it's very clearly, well, I mean, you had an embarrassment of riches when it came to characterizing the character of Hook on screen. You had at least four motifs that you could go to yeah. any time you needed it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, at least. It ties back to Smee very, you know, naturally because the, the entire plan to seduce the children, which is the, the song is the fruits of that, that originates with Smee, right? Knowing that this was a musical, knowing the song roots of this explains so much. It explains why so many of these melodies have like a bridge section that might only appear actually once in the in the film. You know, would he have necessarily written a bridge for that theme if it was only going to appear once? This release, I think, is is going to really transform the way people experience the score. Once yes. once you've heard the songs, once you've gone, and this is why Mike says, you know, Mike says he encourages people to go and start maybe with that disc three program. Well, there is an advantage to that because once you've experienced the the songs and once you've kind of internalized those, and then you go back and you listen to the score, there's this whole dimension that it adds to the experience of listening to the first two discs. Very true, yes. 100%. I'd like to interject here um, on the subject of childhood possibly have been a song for Peter. That was the case. As you know, guys, from the last, from the first talk that I did, the project's been going for years now, but uh, it was more close to the end because we lost Leslie in October of 2021. And more recently, 
all of his work materials have been cataloged and are going to be living at the Library of Congress. So somebody involved in that um, process was uh, Marilee Bradford and the Film Music Society. She, of course, is the wife of John Burlingame. As everything was being pulled out, Leslie had these bound notebooks that cover every stitch of work on every project he ever did, handwritten, if you can imagine, with in his very careful all-caps hand and his blue and red pencils at the ready to underline and put things in different colors. They're works of art uh, among themselves. But uh, Marilee had photographed all of the pages on Hook, in excess of 200 pages at least. And that came much later in the process. We were effectively done, but it was an opportunity to look at everything and just see what else was hiding in there. It's a story in of itself that we haven't even scratched the surface of. I can't even begin to describe how many lyrics there were and how many songs were tried, alternate versions of things. The song that we now know as Believe was considered like a main song that they were trying to nail and at one point had been considered for the end credits. That must have had 10 or 12 different titles and 10 or 12 different uh, attempts at doing something with it. Great things can happen if you believe Greater than any make-believe Daydreams Never achieve them, believe them, and you'll see them come true. There were other kind of things that never reached the melody stage at all, but that childhood was thought of at one point as being something Peter would sing, with some different lyrics. That was certainly to Leslie's ear emerged as the main musical idea for the score and the main thematic idea for the story yes yes so that be, that became a, a, a focus i think but maybe you know one of the weaknesses of the attempt to do this as a musical is that peter is not a singing character and that the songs that did end up reaching any kind of development to the point where they were recorded are people the story kind of stopping and somebody sings to somebody else about an idea about how you should be thinking whether it's to think about childhood or to think about the power of belief. or uh, And so that might have been this stumbling block to trying to make this thing work as a musical, even though there are some great ideas there. And Leslie, in his history, this was like a really good match for him, not only because of being British and having done adaptations of other British literature. A lot of his um, stories that he ended up doing musicals for deal with sort of a quirky, oddball male character who hasn't quite found his fit in life, whether it's Mr. Chips or whether it's Dr. Doolittle or whether it's Willy Wonka. So I think the this adult version of Peter Pan was actually a really good fit for him. But the work went on for nine months. Again, hundreds and hundreds of pages of attempting to do lyrics. It's just a genius mind at work when I look at these things. It just kind of, it, it, you almost can't articulate your feelings about seeing it even and even more so for me who actually knew the guy lots and lots of work that never saw the light of day i think what we did un end up with was um a good bunch of songs that um illuminate the score and give us new things to appreciate about it but that i would say that that was um one of the key stumbling blocks was how do you address the fact that peter's a non-singing character
certainly there are moments in the film where the musical nature or it, the fact that they tried to turn it into a musical remained, at least in filigree, in several moments. And of course, the songs that remained in there, but there are also a couple of scenes where we can find a more musical type of narrative or language or style. And one of the scenes that I'm thinking of, you know, to tie back to your to the fact that childhood can be considered the main theme of the movie is the central key scene of Peter remembering his childhood. We can hear the childhood theme played out in all its entirety, you know, the main melody and the B phrase presented on solo piano in its purest form, we can say. And it's also a touching scene, I think probably the best scene in the movie, at least for me, because it's really brilliant how Spielberg brought alive a storybook feeling, you know, visually. so beautiful and it's a moment where the music is really allowed to breathe and to carry the narrative and to accompany the scene and to enhance its key moments and it seems almost one of those cases where it was the music that was written first and the film followed and not vice versa. go back a little bit um, what John was talking about the themes and how they sound uh, so developed with bridge sections um, the one that I was kind of surprised that didn't end up having any lyrics and never was going to be a song was the Lost Boys theme because that theme is, is so long lined with like a whole developed A and B section that yes
was kind of surprising to learn that uh, there was never any intention to to use that melody as a song. It said they, they, they had the Never song with a completely different melody. Yeah, I could maybe dig dig more thoroughly into Leslie's notebooks and see if anything um, matched that rhythm. He would write these things with uh, to put in, a, in the margin, kind of like the the rhythm of the song with vertical lines, you know, oh, wow. and dots to think it's it's a da 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 da, you know. And he would he would do it almost like a Morse code to know what rhythm he had to find words to hang on. On it. Yes, uh, and this is so fascinating also to think about how music is created. You know, many times, you know, we as as admirers also of John Williams wonders how melodies and themes come up to his mind and how he develops them. I always had the feeling that since he's a great jazz man and jazz pianist, he probably has this ability to improvise at the keyboard and finding tunes within his hands and the chords and melodies and then start as a building blocks over there at the piano. So I wonder if that is his own methodology. And so it's so the, all the more fascinating when he works in partnership with the lyricist, how the two words come together. But I'd like to know from you guys what you think of the fact to say on that cue, the Never Feast, it was reworked. And I know it was something that the insert, what we call the cornucopia yes. insert, was something that has you've always wanted, not until now has it been presented properly. In, in the version that you hear in the film. What do you think the thinking was behind the need to rescore that section? Yeah, I have a theory about that. And it's it's fairly prosaic, actually. I, I think that there are a lot of shots of food towards the beginning of that sequence where you're seeing the table and you're seeing the tableau. My own theory on this is that just simply playing the Lost Boys theme over that entire sequence didn't give it the focus on the characters as much that it that he may have wanted to achieve because when you look uh the rescored parts that kind of take the the theme out and just have that kind of festive atmosphere are the shots where it's focused on the table and it's focused on the food yes i don't know you know if, if that was the identical cut and it was just the result of seeing it played back with the original recording yeah i think you're right i think i mean we can only speculate but uh i guess there was probably some discussion between spielberg and williams on how to build the tension and when to release it, you know? And for them, I guess it was key to find the right moment when to release the proper full statement of the Lost Boy theme. And I think that these are the key discussion between a director and a composer whenever they want to achieve the best effect on how to use music in a scene. And whenever we see, you know, Peter finding his own imagination and being able to see food finally, there's this big build-up. And then, after, I mean, a full minute, I think, more or less, of build, then we have the theme finally being released. film 
it was you know, a different need. And I think on a purely musical terms, the original version that we is heard on the original soundtrack album works better, at least musically, because you have this huge build-up and then the final release of the theme. But instead, in the film, that kind of festive, Christmassy insert was needed, and it's beautiful, I mean, I love it, and then the theme is released when we see the faces of the Lost Boys. So I guess it's a case of delayed gratification. <laughs> yeah. presentation of the theme coming in yeah right? so, yeah yeah even though we've heard it in the previous cue right but it's like yep. now that peter's having that transformation that he's learning to use his imagination you build back up to you know a satisfying moment when the theme returns and that's something that is very characteristic of williams i was actually talking about this with john powell when we were talking about um solo he was talking about how he learned so much from studying john williams and how he dealt with kind of long sequences and how williams had this knack for bringing the tempo down for slowing down for quieting down and then building back up again without losing the tension. And, and that was such a, a brilliant way of, of making these long sequences not feel monotonous or overly taxing to the ear. And the example he used was the, um, uh, the truck chase from, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. So Williams just has these amazing instincts for, for how to add that sort of tension and that sort of dramatic interest to a scene that complements you know spielberg's visual style so beautifully yeah it seems that a lot of these things for him relate to tempo and rhythm and pace that he finds within the movie and i think that for him it's one of the key components for his work as a film composer is to find the right tempo and to find the inner pace of a single scene and you know and how to build the musical structure out of that he spoke about this on many interviews and I think it's quite important to the success of a score like Hook. He would look at movies obviously with no music and so as edited, you know, some kind of tempo must occur in his mind of, as you say, figuring out what is the tempo of the movie in itself with no music and then you have to write something that matches with it. If you're too slow or too fast, it's, it's not a right fit. So there's a case where that scene, that uh, reveal of the table, does have a very pronounced beat to it. But you're only looking at a tracking shot of a camera, yet in Williams' mind, it's going to have some sort of beat. Yeah, so that that, that process, you know, he's, there's just, um, there's no one who has better instincts when it comes to that.
one thing I, I really love about Hook, we're talking about, you know, things in tempo, that becomes especially important because there is there is a clock theme running through the film and the score. There is this sense of time ticking away that he not only has to to tap into subliminally, but, you know, it kind of explicitly bring into the music at certain points. That to me was was always one of the joys of this score was was that that kind of metronomic efficiency and and those moments where where he turns the orchestra into a, a ticking clock sometimes very subtly sometimes very overtly um, but I've always loved that thread in this score. That's a good segue to talk about the end of Hook. And now there's a cue which is fantastically, brilliantly over the top, but it leads us to think, did Spielberg and Williams realise it's actually too much? Because this, this is a, a conversation which I know a lot of us have had over the years. And for, for me personally, and I know many, many people would agree that I, I think it's probably the way the finished film cut works is better because it gives us all time to breathe. But I do I do love that unused end of hook bit where it goes on and on and on. It's brilliantly... It's a lavish. giant fanfare, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Um, so I'm just interested, you know, individually what all of you think. Uh, you know, we're all kind of, we all love music and, and film. And what are your thoughts on, on that uh, unused piece? I think it was wise in the film to dial out that end of hook uh, big huge fanfare yes. because it gives the audience a moment of rest after 20 plus minutes of incredibly highly energetic <laughs> swashbuckling battle music and so it gives us a breather for <laughs> and a the, moment uh, and, and the big burp <laughs> <laughs> and also I think silence in that regard communicates to the audience a sense of is hook really gone is he missing i mean mm. so there's a sense of mystery and suspense for a while
it's clear that he's gone, that music starts again. And of course, in on disc is different. I mean, I love the fact that on disc we have the opportunity to hear the proper big fanfare where, you know, as John Williams originally intended. I mean, it's a brilliant moment, musically speaking. <laughs> of something I would not have recreated to present on an album. And it's just one of those cases where the decision is right for the movie and, you know, and that's its own thing. And yes. the, and what the music recorded is what was recorded. We have a third component now sometimes where I ask myself, okay, well, what's right for a concert? Because that's come up a lot lately. And we find that, you know, you can get okay. away with scoring, say, the UFO on Roy Neary struck in Close Encounters is now scored in concert. But it was right to not use that in the film. Yes. I, I just think uh, we can all have opinions. I mean, there's scenes, even in Hook, where I kind of felt they might have been worked better with no music. Um, and some things I do wish um, had been left in. There's a lot of dialed out music in Hook, too. Yes. So I think they did have, particularly in the early sequence on the Jolly Roger, they were very careful in having the music say something. Because, again, music can't say anything unless it's absent. So you have a sequence that was almost scored end to end. But, and it's great as a listening experience because you have a musical narrative. Yes. It was probably right in the movie to bring it out for those moments so that when it comes back, such as when they look at the scar on, on Peter's torso, the music comes back there. It's more pointed. You suddenly come to a little more of a tension when music returns, but that can only happen if you've had the absence preceding it.
going back a, a second, Mike, I, I remember we, we had that conversation about scenes that you would have even preferred without music. And I, I remember the one you said was the bedroom scene where he, where he goes up the stairs and, and sees the bedroom for the first time. And I thought that was really interesting because for me, going back, you know, as a child, you know, when I was 11 years old, sitting in the, the theater, seeing this movie for the first time, I remember that moment because it was a truly magical moment for me with when he goes up and it's just, I, I think the, the, the quiet of the scene otherwise where the music just carries it, you know, and he's looking at the paintings and, and that kind of, that kind of numinous quality that, that, that almost spiritual, you yes. know, component it seems like it. the music is luring him into the bedroom. Yeah. Yes. As, yeah. as an 11 year old, I was yeah. absolutely transfixed by that scene. And the music was such a huge part of it. I just can't imagine what I, what my response would have been if it had been unscored. I think that's my the carryover from I was older than eleven when this movie opened. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> and, and my and one of the criticisms I had of it was that um, London felt too magical. It needed to be more realistic, like the Wizard of Oz. You know, Kansas had to be had to be bleak, my and wife, yeah. um, so that the fantasy world really stood out. But I kind of felt like London was treated too magically. Well, that's a line of dialogue, right? A li um, London is a magical place for children. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I mean, I kind of think, you know, you, you didn't make a, as powerful a transition to a fantasy world by doing that. And I just, in my adult mind, logically, it made no sense that 90-year-old Wendy would have maintained this nursery looking exactly the way that it was with pictures of Hook on the wall and hooks as the latches on the windows. I mean, that didn't make any sense to me. It just should have been sort of some typical... In my adult mind, the, a, a London yeah. flat that um, bore no resemblance to the nursery from Peter Pan. Yeah. Too, too, but, too much uh, suspension of disbelief for you. Right, that Peter then goes <laughs> yeah. into and maybe then flashes back to a quick memory of what it had looked like in long ago past and not knowing quite where that memory came from. Something more sophisticated like that was probably was going to be more appealing to me as an adult. As shot and as presented and edited... The music certainly works perfectly. It's just that I kind of thought that, you know, um, not tipping your hand to the fantasy world too soon was one of the little flaws of the film to me. Yeah, I understand uh, what you're talking about, Mike. And I also think that one of the key elements in Hook is the fact, I mean, as much as Williams taps into our collective consciousness in terms of referencing music that we already know, like, you know, Tchaikovsky-like uh, Celeste theme for Tinkerbell, or maybe the swashbuckling music a la Korngold for the battle scenes. So he's able to conjure in our collective, in the collective minds, you know, images of, you know, pirate adventure music or fairy tales. 
And Spielberg does more or less the same visually and cinematically whenever he taps into the collective consciousness of what Peter Pan is for the viewer. I mean, and of course, there's a strong visual reference to the original Disney animated feature. And also, I think there was a sense of going back to the literary roots of the character of the going back to the original novel of James Barry, which is actually part of the world uh, in which the film takes place. I mean, it's part of that world. I, I was going to say, I, I think it does go back to the book because, of course, in the book, that is where the magic begins, is in the nursery. And Barry does not have that same demarcation, that same kind of fantastic demarcation between London and, and Neverland. London is, uh, you know, a fairly magically depicted even in those early chapters. So I, I think it may go back to that. I do think that there was a sense, even if the, they didn't demarc it exactly the way that, that, say, Mike would have, the score doesn't enter until they reach London and they reach, reach Wendy's residence. You know, you, you've got the piano introduction, you've got the, the song in the context of the school play, you've got Banning Back Home, right? But the film actually takes its time, from a modern perspective, of holding off those those kind of magically scored moments until that what is it, that first shot of Wendy on the stairs? Is that where it comes in? Yes, you got it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's true. right. And I think also it's nice that you mentioned Banning Back Home because I think that moment, that cue, which is a kind of an oddity in the score itself because it sticks out so much from the rest and it's written in a very contemporary for back in the day language of vernacular, of course, calling back to the style of Dave Grusin. Uh, that was very popular back in the day. And it's definitely a, a line of demarcation, I mean, score-wise, because it's the only piece of music that plays before we get to London. think it's also fun to mention that the original manuscript title of Benny Back Home was actually Yuppie Sounds. <laughs> and that's a word we don't really use anymore, but yes. it was a very big thing at the time. And and does anybody, do we all know that it stood for Young Upwardly Mobile? That's what it stood for. Well, it's, it's very much a London word. You know, yuppies were kind of the um, Fleet Street of, uh, of London and Del Boy, if anyone watches Only Fools and Horses, Del Boy would have been wanting to be a yuppie, but he, he never quite <laughs> made that grade. You know? Yeah, and one of the reasons 
why I wanted to mention this piece specifically is also because it features a wonderful piano solo by the great late Mike Lang. Mike Lang was one of the long-standing members of John Williams Orchestra in Los Angeles and played piano and keyboards on dozens of his scores. And speaking of the almost impossibly high level of musicianship that is displayed on the hook score, uh, we have to mention some of the other great musicians who played on this score, like Luis de Tullio, who has some incredibly beautiful flute solos. And principal horn Jim Thatcher, who is spotlighted on many moments throughout the score. And of course, the whole you know, woodwind section and the brass section. I mean, basically all the orchestra had incredibly virtuosic music to play all throughout. Tim and I spoke with many of the long-standing orchestra members who played for John Williams over the years, and literally all of them singled out Hook as a very special moment in their career working for John Williams, and they all fondly remember those scoring sessions at Sony Studios, back in the day was still called MGM, I think, and, uh, and the special air that was on the stage performing that music. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a few things to just get there on the record. So, yeah, it had been the MGM stage in the 80s. It was Lorimar. And this particular moment in time was called Westside Studio Services. And Sony, as I mentioned last time, was on the horizon of coming in and purchasing TriStar and Columbia and turning it into Sony Pictures. And so it became the Sony stage, now formerly the Barbra Streisand stage. But Hook, with the exception of... The Book Thief and the things done in London, the Harry Potter and the Star Wars prequels, that was when he actually landed permanently at that stage with Sean Murphy. Prior to that, Home Alone was the last one at Fox until The Book Thief with um, Armin Steiner. However, the pre-recorded songs um, for Hook were done by Armin Steiner at 20th Century Fox. So this is very much a transitional moment where I think that that team with permanently working with Sean, permanently Sony becoming the default LA place to go, and the, the particular core group of musicians that he liked to work with and figuring out how that stage sounded and how do you, how do you record a John Williams score in that room? I mean, I think Hook really is sort of a, a, a foundation for everything that came later. Even though they'd worked there before, Empire of the Sun had been done there. But uh, I think Hook was really a foundation for, uh, for the team that came together.
I think it's also worth highlighting actually a year before in 1990 during Dances with Wolves by John Barry there was a changing of the guard a lot of the musicians you know the Sandy the Crescent Orchestra which as we all know is the cream of the crop it's interesting when you look at that timeline then maybe that actually works quite well thinking of the the sincere musicianship the unparalleled quality of playing a lot of them were probably trying to prove themselves yes. you know that era because they'd literally just as i say a changing of the guard from you know that classic hollywood era it's 1991 now so naturally a lot of them were you know uh, blessed them you know past their age i also want to stick in there the fact that uh, mike lang played on the 20th century fox version of that banning back home aka yuppie sounds recorded by armin steiner and that was on the album not the version that was redone at sony which i think was ralph grierson on and we find that both versions of the cue are a lot longer than the film for um which it was in, supposed to go with so there's an example of a lot of uh sequences that we have never seen yet that what was the scene like at the moment it was scored it's worth um, also noting that in the in the Lang version, the, in the extended version, you actually have some genuine jazz improvisation in there. A lot of things that people hear when they hear jazz and they, they tend to assume it's all kind of improvised, a lot of that is, is actually very carefully structured. And if you go back to William's manuscripts, he can be very precise about what he wants uh, to be going on at any given moment. But there is a, a good chunk of that, that extended part, where it genuinely, you know, it's, there's a big, you know, the manuscript is relatively bare and it just says improvisation there. So it's really interesting to hear the full piece as it was recorded for the first time. Terrific. There is a really nice anecdote that Mike Lang shared with us when he was guest on the Legacy of John Williams podcast after we asked him about uh, recording this piece for John Williams. And this is the story that he shared. The piece itself, just the, the written material he did is very much featuring the piano. It's very noty and it's, it's wonderful. It's just very inspired, I thought. He really just, he really got that world on his own terms, which is the best thing you could ask for. And then in the middle, there's an improvised piano solo. And I was feeling that it was kind of funky and slightly gospelly based on, not on his writing, but on the way we were feeling as a band. So, you know, I just felt like, well, the obvious thing to do would be to try and play it as much like Dave Grusin as possible. And I just felt like, well, that's probably not right. A John isn't trying to be as Dave Grusin as, as possible. He's being John Williams in that world. 
and I need to be me in that world. And what do I feel I should be playing? And I felt like it should be kind of funky and R&B tinged. So John was not in the studio. He was in the booth, you know, listening. And we did a tape. And we did it. And nobody said anything. Because I was kind of the centerpiece. I said, so how was that? Michael, that's totally wrong. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, falling apart. It was that you would expect anything that. else. That's all he said. And I said, uh, what can we do to fix it? What's wrong? He said, think Polonk, think Mozart. And I knew immediately what he wanted. And I was very disappointed by the request because I kind of liked what I was doing. You know, I thought it was kind of cool. And uh, but he obviously wanted it to sound more formal, a little bit more. Uh, uh, what's the word? Modest, proper, you know, within that context. I, I'm sure he wanted to be really stiff and uh, like uh, aristocratic. You know, I don't think he meant exactly that. He was just moving me away from where I was. And so I, we did another take and I made the adjustments and we were all fine. But I wasn't being critical of John or, you know, being incensed by his thing. I just thought it was kind of cute the way he was so in your face about it. This is totally wrong. He never thought that, that might not be what a musician wants to hear. But, you know, it's almost with a twinkle, you know. <laughs> this is such a lovely, lovely story, I think, because it's... It's one of the reasons why I love talking with musicians is because they provide this unique and personal insight into the process of working with John Williams and making music together with him and, and also the level of trust that John Williams puts into his own musicians and the fact that he trusts all of them so much and give them incredible parts to perform. And a lot of his scores are so performance dependent in the sense that they rely so much on the high level of musicianship that is required to make the magic happen, actually. Yeah, I think this is a great example of how releasing the full recorded version of a cue instead of an album edit can transform things because honestly, on the original album, it wasn't one of my favorite tracks. I would often want to just start the experience with the Granny Wendy track and listen from there to the end and then now the, the full recording with that great improv section, it's great. And I look forward to it coming in every time. And it really changes the whole opening experience of the whole new main program. Yeah, just to spend a little bit more time in Peter's world before Neverland. Yeah. It's a more well-rounded composition now. And it's really surprising to me to think out of all the things to shorten for the original album, why he, he would want that improv to be cut out. I have no idea why it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, it was already a very full CD. I mean, it was like I guess so. yeah, it's a very full CD, yeah. and, and these every presentation has its own flow. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I even uh, came across a um, a dat tape of the original soundtrack album assembled, and it wasn't final. It had um, the bridge piano solo for "We Don't Want to Grow Up" was still in there, so that was a late edit, also to shorten that. So it must have been just running time considerations for the uh, the album that was driving some of it. Although it was very, lo very, very long for for Williams' soundtrack and, and for his time. It was period, so. absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. There's obviously some music that couldn't be on the album because the album had to be locked before it was all recorded. So it's interesting to compare the music that just couldn't be there with the music that he chose not to include. It's interesting stuff to think about sometimes.
Williams, his relationship with musicians, of course, they, so many amazing musicians, they absolutely love recording his stuff. And, and I think this goes back to Williams' immense knowledge of the orchestra, especially as you were getting into the 90s. There's a lot of um, composers who would write and then someone else would come in and, you know, they would orchestrate. They would, they would basically take what had been done on a keyboard or in a computer and try and figure out, well, how do we make this playable for an orchestra? But with Williams, there is no filter there. He does use orchestrators who have sometimes described themselves as glorified copyists yes. because his sketches are so precise. But for Williams, when he's even conceiving the music, he has a full awareness of the range of the instrument, of what the performers are capable of. There's no kind of intermediary between the music as he conceives it and the music as it comes to the musicians uh, to play it. And I imagine, and I have read that, yeah, as a musician, it's very kind of rewarding and exciting to have that sort of music to perform, uh, music that from its very inception was written for you to be able to play and to play beautifully, so. And I think he also knows when he writes that uh, if he, he doesn't worry, he says, oh, I know she could play this or he could play this, you know, he, he yeah. knows. <laughs> Talking in broader terms, guys, um, I know this is always difficult to do, but how would you rank Hook in the overall body of work of John Williams? I mean, do you all consider it one of his long-standing masterworks, I mean, among the many <laughs> that he composed? I'll start by just saying that uh, to me, I'm just sort of in awe of the scope of it and just the sheer energy and amount of effort that went into doing all of it and keeping it all straight. It's just pure straight line. This is what makes John Williams great, even though it may not be a top personal favorite of mine, but you have to bow to just the, the brilliance of just the achievement in and of itself. And it's great that it's had a life in the concert hall and he did four or five um, album arrangements of things for the Spielberg compilations and stuff and does the Flight to Neverland in concert quite often. So it's nice uh, that it still has a life. It is certainly for me one of the top, if not the top. Again, hitting me at the age it did. Uh, and again, I talk a little bit about this in the piece, right? This was the first time I'd really gotten the full force of that Spielberg-Williams collaboration, that kind of unique magic that only they can create in as a, thea as a theater-going experience. You know, I had seen some Williams things before through television. I, I was a big fan of as pure music. But to be there in a darkened theater with Steven Spielberg's images up on the screen and John Williams' music supporting them, that was pretty formative for me. It was hard for any other score to kind of match that. And when you combine that with a score of such inherent richness, as Mike says, that's, that is such a monumental achievement, it's always going to be uh, a personal favorite of mine, if not the favorite. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought it was one of his masterpieces, but we're talking about a man who has written more masterpieces than anyone. So I've always found ranking things to be a little difficult and ultimately fruitless, but it's it's always been up there. And I think hearing it in complete form really cements that more than any other way of experiencing it can. And I remember telling Mike at some point when we had heard the 
score tracks and hadn't heard the songs yet. And we didn't even know yet if the songs would get through all the approvals to come out. I said, even if the songs can't be included, what you've put together here is, is a masterpiece of, you know, catalog soundtrack restoration, you know, for a score that's already a masterpiece. Even if the songs can't be included, um, this music is, is, you know, so wonderful, speaks for itself, tells this wonderful narrative story. And then when you think about the songs and how knowing the songs enhance the score, and then you go back and knowing the score enhances the songs. And I feel like I'm still just getting to know this score that I've already known for 30 years. It's like the songs just add this whole other dimension that, that there's just so much more magic to even discover still. Yeah, you said that beautifully, Jason. Um, and that's, that's to me what's elevated the whole project for me is um, the extra illumination that the songs give to the score overall. And it really is a case of one hand washes the other hand and both hands wash the face. It's like both the score helped us make the song presentation more powerful and the songs helped make the score presentation more powerful. So uh, I don't think that I was even prepared for the cumulative impact that the whole thing would have when it came together. And, you know, I was very protective of the songs and worried because I had to send them around to various people to identify singers. And they've been floating around for a few years and I was terrified that they would leak out or that someone would say something and that uh, somehow the um, lid wouldn't be kept on it. So I was very protective and not wanting to uh, send them to more people than necessary until I knew that it was actually happening. So uh, we can talk either now or next time about um, what you guys thought when you first heard them. Can I just say how clever some of the lyrics are in some of the songs, um, especially the Never song and, and Stick With Me? Some of the wordplay is just so interesting and unexpected for me because the three songs that made the film are, are all good songs, but they're, they're not full of such clever lyrical writing. Uh, you know, stuff like uh, a teacher teaching Nietzsche and all these kind of amusing moments in, in some of the, the new songs. Oh, uh, total brickicisms, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Neuropsychiatric etymologist. Etymologist, yes. Sir. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like a little, little bit of the Roll doll influence still coming through there, so. <laughs> it's not a sin living in luxury. Using your imagination, you will see. Hooked to me, you'll surely be anything you want to. I'm a winner, stick with me. Wanna be an actor? Go ahead and be an actor. Wanna be a doctor? I approve that too. Wanna be a neuropsychiatric etymologist? Let me see what I can do. There's no doubt I live outrageously in a world the rabble never get to see. Total raging ecstasy. Everything you dreamed would be Be a dreamer, stick with me You can be a preacher Or a teacher teaching Nietzsche You can be a traitor or dictator or a waiter Every day you'll see caviar for tea Anything Stick with me It's amazing how much this project continued to give even working on it in even working on it in stages how and and, and hearing some of this stuff and living for for a while it, it felt like there was always 
something amazing, something new that you didn't expect. Because, you know, going into this, I, I probably knew a lot more about the score than most laymen, right? You know, I, I had a very good sense of what was out there. Even if I knew that it was something I hadn't heard yet, I was kind of aware that this was something that was coming. But the score is is so rich and so giving, as I say, that that even very late in the process, you know, I there were things that that absolutely stunned and delighted me. One of the things that was a late addition to the program, Mike located this alternate uh, version of the exit music. Now that for me, that has always been one of my absolute favorite pieces of music that was written for this film. Uh, the moment the I learned of its existence, heard it for the first time, it was there was a version of it on the. Uh, the last release that has always been a favorite of mine. The Believe theme always been a, a huge favorite of mine, and I must have since the last release must have listened to that piece a hundred times. So Mike finds this alternate and and just says, "Okay, you know, I, I added this to the program," and and <laughs> I'm listening to it for the first time. And for those who who don't know the difference, there's um essentially eight bars of woodwind counterpoint that were originally written and in later takes were tacited to kind of draw out those wonderful Wagnerian arpeggios, right? I understand, you know, the, the piece feels wonderful as we have known it and as it was intended to be used in the film, but this early alternate, just something small like that, just the addition of an yes. additional line of counterpoint yeah. was such a magical discovery for me. I was so delighted. I just listened, you know, play those 30 seconds over and over again. score has to enchant to draw you in and to continually be giving you something new something exciting even to those of us who have been you know living with the material for so long uh and who know it so well is really a, te a testament to what williams accomplished uh, and what brick has accomplished on this uh on this project and i wasn't um, sure about uh that ad also but what happened was again a lot of the work on the sound of music was concurrent with this um, for the last few years. And so I did go to Julie Andrews about the temporary track that she had re recorded for childhood. She declined to want it included. And I kind of understood it um, because it was not really done for any other purpose other than giving Maggie Smith something to listen to and perform to when they went to film it. And I see that such, as such a big star, it was just an unfair thing to kind of you know, you could drive sales with it, and that really wasn't... Uh, so I kind of understood the reason why we didn't get it. So that moved Bobby Page's version of it, which is beautiful, and which Leslie originally wanted on there, because Julie did more of a speak-singing kind of version of it. But Bobby did a very musical version. And uh, as I mentioned in, in our part one chat about Hook, um, she's done recording of more Brickus demos than probably anybody for Sherlock Holmes and a lot of his shows. So we moved that up front, and that opened up more space on disc three. As I kept living with the assembly, I had another late idea in conjunction with this, which was to pull out the middle section of the Farewell Neverland track, 
which is the choral section as the children return and the mother's asleep in the chair in the nursery. And there's no themes there. And it's its own cue. It's called Next Morning. I think it's called Next Morning. So by pulling that out and joining the two ends together, what you end up with is a final track capped off by that Kensington extension, um, with his, which is a summation of the clock motif and brings us back to that inserted um, Never Feast motif. Yes, very exactly. Um, yes. But you now yes. have a kind of summary presentation of four song melodies, which suddenly made the songs even more powerful to me and made the whole thing con- more conceptually um, stronger. So we got to that end and I thought, you know, there's still room on here. I wonder if I could, I, I would love to hear the repeated exit music. But dare I, it just felt like kind of like just gilding the lily too much. It's like, it's fine as is. But when I put it there, I thought, no, actually, I think um, we've earned it. I think we've earned it. And so I changed the assembly around, sent it back to John. says, listen to this again, because now, you know, it's, it's a little bit different. But uh, it got through and reapproved. So um, so there we have it. And uh, I didn't realize it was going to have that profound impact on John when he heard it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on this John. Yeah. John T. <laughs> yeah, I, other, I'm very John glad T. that it worked out the way it did. I'm yeah. very glad that it oh, worked yeah. out the way it did. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, it, it sounds wonderful. It, it does. And it's also uh, important to state how the end credits, which is on this version, doesn't have the very messy Lost Boys Chase edit. This is all proper musical listening and it's uh, beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We should maybe back up and mention while we're here the fact that one of the things that drove this whole attempt to turn it into a musical was the very early idea of opening the Neverland sequence with a big production number, which had a um, which was the one thing that had a lot of work done to do a full playback recordings of all the people who are actually going to sing and dance in it. And uh, that changes the whole scope of your of the score and your whole idea of the movie by hearing that and having that. And I'm just, uh, you know, what was your guy's reaction when you first heard that? Yeah, I didn't know what to expect, but um, I, I would have thought it was the low below melody from the score only turned into yeah. a song. And, and I was surprised yeah. when it has all these different melodies for different sections. And then he's in the barbershop and when the prostitutes are there and it's it's it's, it's so so many ideas in, in what is it, four minutes? It's It's really interesting. Low below, where dead men go. Low below, the time goes slow. Low below, your bows are show. There is the grave of Davy Jones. Low below. Part of Low Below that survived in the in the final film uh, isn't even the primary melody of Low Below. It's the chorus. Yes. Right. Yes. It's it's the chorus mm, section. Yeah. That was such an interesting track. I mean, the first time I heard it, I yeah, I was blown away by both the length of it and the sheer variety. And it's also very interesting to see how what elements from that sequence got condensed down and and folded into the the finished version of that sequence which is where we, you know, with the, the kind of little pirate parade up to the, to the Jolly Roger with Smee carrying the hook aloft, right? That, that whole, how that translated in the film. And you can definitely hear 
passages in the longer, full, fully produced musical version that, that were taken verbatim into the film version. And actually, what's interesting is there, there's an intermediary version that I don't believe it was ever recorded, where the low below melody featured throughout. Stick with me, originally, it doesn't appear in the production number version, you know, in the big low below number. Stick with me does not appear. Different song, right? In Williams, when he was sketching that cue out, it wasn't there either. It was it was low below all the way through up the march, up the gangplank, and onto the ship. And it was only later that he went back and revised that to kind of use that as an opportunity to introduce Stick With Me, which is, again, the, this very kind of charismatic and seductive aspect to Hook uh, that we now, that we would be, is a good idea to convey there. And I, I don't believe the earlier version was ever actually recorded. No. Um, no, not recorded, but I think the score was marked to at bar such and such, switch to Stick With Me. Or yeah, like yeah, that, right. So, and, and so it's very interesting because when you when you listen to that big production number, you, you get to hear some of that. You get to hear that that original conception for that march up the gangplank, yes. where yes. where stick with me is in the film. You're you're hearing low below going all the way through, and the way that builds and the way that culminates is just fascinating to to be able to hear that at last. And the same uh, vocal lyrics, hook hook, show us the hook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, show us your hook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. talked about Caroline Goodall that insert of when she starts singing when you're alone which I think it's a lovely I mean it's only a few seconds but that that I take it that's in the scene where she's obviously saying goodnight to the kids. putting Maggie to bed and uh, yeah. it's it sets up later in the movie where Jack says uh, my mother used to sing that song yes so yes. we have the payoff but not the setup If you guys ever had the opportunity to hear this, the the raw recordings of the vocal part of when you're alone, because when I heard it again, uh, I noticed how much how pure is the singing in that song. Because nowadays it would have been all post-produced with auto tune and and stuff like that, you know, and then perfected that something much more precise. Instead, it's very you know you can hear it's not a a proper singer doing that, but instead you hear all the, the the kind of imperfection, but it makes it so so beautiful and human. There's yeah. an innocence there, yeah, yeah. That it, the but the vocal performance did need to actually be stitched together by Armin Steiner, yeah, um, I guess with so. another singer filling in certain notes. So, but Armin stitched that all together, and then rather infamously, poor poor Amber had to lip sync to it on the Oscars. <laughs> But, uh, and I think that everybody was surprised that it got an Oscar nomination, which was no small feat in the year of Beauty and the Beast. Every day must end, but the nights are free. 
We should mention that Low Below and the Caroline Goodall version of When You're Alone were the only other songs that were filmed. The rest uh, are just demos and, and never got filmed. Although I guess Dustin Hoffman was rehearsing Stick With Me. Must have been this, uh, in Leslie's notebooks. There's a note about when Dustin was going to um, record. But I think, honestly, Dustin was probably... I think his influence is what maybe had them back away from doing the musical. Because uh, he ultimately never recorded it. Caroline did film her bit because that was a finished uh, playback track. Everything else was um, demos. Supposedly Maggie Smith also filmed, but we've never seen any of these things. Do you remember, guys, also, I think I mentioned the last time around that it was supposed to be a anniversary 4K Blu-ray, but that got delayed also. But at some point, Sony called and said there's going to be outtakes on this release and mm-hmm. invited yeah. me over to look at them. And I was very, very curious if any oh, of them would have anything to do with the music sequence. And none of them do. When I mentioned, and I made lists for you guys, and you almost, I think you said I had never heard of any of these scenes because there were some weird ones in there. Um yeah, I think the Believe Your Eyes scene is in there, though, right? Believe Your Eyes is, but this, this is not a song there, right? So, no, right, yeah, right, the, right. Not, none of the deleted scenes that were released ultimately with the 4K connect to the musical aspect of it. You do get to see, as as Jason said, you, you do get to see Believe Your Eyes. Believe Your Eyes is in there. We also have that weird flashback to a adolescent Peter in school, which I guess was supposed to come somewhere in that childhood remembered sequence. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly a lot of you know fodder if they ever choose to revisit that in the in the future. And I don't know what was in there versus what was found because um, I mentioned last time Marty Cohen, who was so supportive and such a good friend. He he was pretty clear on things that had been filmed, but um, he's not around now for me to go and say, hey. What all was there in the first place? Did they pull? For all we know, if this if they did have a slice in the hand sequence, maybe Julia Roberts didn't sign off on including it or something. So you have to kind of look at that. But there were certainly weird things about uh, Peter getting back to London at the end and kind of doing flips on the street, which was, by the way, at <laughs> Universal. There had been a fire on the back lot, and then Spielberg actually put money into rebuilding New York Street on the Universal back lot and then filmed there for that uh, outside of the Kensington um, flat. Back in that era, I mean, we're, we're talking early 90s, the the, the talk and the, the hype about the sets was incredible because I, I believe one of the biggest things to do was to go and visit the, the Hook set. You know, the, that was kind of, if you visited it, you were, you were considered to be, you know, top brass back in those although, days. Although it seems like almost everybody who was anybody ended up there. Well, um, yeah, David Crosby, Glenn Close, my goodness. Yeah, but I mean, they paraded everybody through there to to impress them. And uh, I think some of the musicians uh, told me that whenever they went going to record at Sony, at MGM Sony Studios, they were seeing all the year, you know, the sets being built because you know they, they, there was it was a huge, huge outdoor set there on the on the lot when they were building the actual Jolly Roger. They were already knowing that this was coming, so <laughs> they were pretty excited <laughs> back in the day. 
you know, I think they were being incorporated the what is known as the Esther Williams tank, right, into yeah. that. Oh. Yeah. Where, of course, uh, the underwater scenes and Jaws were done there, and uh, uh, 1941, and then the mermaid stuff was done there. But they incorporated that, and then another huge set for the Lost Boys treehouse foresty environment. I mean, these were just some of the most massive uh, sets Hollywood had seen in a very long time. things that came together so well with this we ended up really with three components for what to do beyond the score there was alternates there was source music and there were songs and i could have just thrown them together just like that but i just early on asked myself knowing that the goal here really was to get approval so i just thought well what happens if i put them all together and this magic thing just came into place where it worked as a narrative even including things like God Rest You Merry Gentlemen and Take Me Out to the Ball Game, even that, putting in the alternate film version of um, the Lost Boy Chase with the kind of the bongo-type percussion that comes in for the basketball sequence, made such a perfect uh, introduction to Neverland, which is a Lost Boy song with just piano. So all of it just so magically worked that... Uh, the same thing happened with the notes, where we kind of had this idea of how to divide it up, where I'm like, okay, well, I'll do sort of a basic overview, and John will do an analysis of the score, and then Jason will explain, you know, where everything is and, and how it all sort of evolved. You would think that that would go on for a long, long, long time, but I was surprised how well it came together so quickly. We each contributed to each other's, but it ended up just uh, really coming together um, kind of painlessly. It was a real pleasure to, you know, collaborate on these notes and, and to get everyone's input and, and to be able to ring in and to see how everything just kind of just kind of came together. And, and, and I hope we accomplished uh, what we set out to. I, I, that's ultimately for readers like you, Tim and, and Maurizio, to, uh, to decide. But yeah, Couldn't have we... been better, truly. And I, oh, and it's I, and I truly mean yeah. it. It's a perfect summation of everything crucial to know about the, the movie and, and the music absolutely mm. no it's a joy to read even at 48 pages with the second booklet for the um, track list and the credits similar to what we do with fiddler on the roof even with that we could only barely scratch the surface i think but i think that just would have put people off and even if we had unlimited real estate we have forums like this to start that conversation yeah, and, uh, yeah. and, and and can go on um, with the internet conversation as well and message boards and such and uh, we can always take questions from people and come back and uh, expound even further about it because it's just the gift that keeps on giving this score it really is absolutely and i think it's also a nice way to sum up today's conversation there's certainly a lot more to mine 
on this score. And so let's stop here for today. And let me say the most profound thank you from Tim and I for joining us and for discussing this marvelous release, which is already a cornerstone in the collection of all true John Williams fans. It is. So thank you, Mike, for spending so much time with us. Sure, my pleasure. This was a big one, so it's like, uh, I very rarely feel that I should pat myself on the back for anything, but this is one where it just was a lot. I mean, I don't think it's ever been so much administration on any project I've ever done that's gone on so long. And again, always that worry about the, <laughs> about the news leaking out, but uh, we managed to keep a lid on it. This is the release that I have wanted since I was 11 years old. You know, since I walked out of that, since I walked out of that theater, since I got that soundtrack and, and heard it, and even as long as that CD was, you know, knowing how much was out there and how much was in the film, this this is the release I, I've dreamed about essentially since I was a kid. So to be able to not merely have it, but to, to have been able to participate on it was an incredible privilege and an incredible gift. And, and I'm still pinching myself that it all came out the way it did because I think it's stunning. Yeah, John said it best. It's It's been a dream come true to not only have it, but to have worked on it. And it's it's funny how he said it was the album he had, he had wanted since he was a kid. Because way back in 2016, when Mike first brought me in to, to help him figure out what a new expanded version of the of the score could look like one of the things i remember him saying was that he the initial starting point was an album that i would be happy owning which i was incredibly uh grateful to, <laughs> for him to describe it that way but i think he knew that i had done a lot of time studying the score and that and i i liked the score so much that I guess it made sense to start from there to try to figure out what could go on it. And then when the when the riches started coming in from Sony Pictures, when they found all the things that we hoped existed, and then they all turned out to exist and, and everything got approved, it's just been so many happy moments over the last seven years of continually finding new things and finding that we'd, we'd get to release them all. Uh, it's been great. Yeah, this, this album is my happy thought. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely put, John. So it's, you know, the, the journey has certainly been profound. And this album is as magical as, as the film and the music itself. And we talked about disc three being a highlight. And I don't know how it's done, Mike, and maybe Matt and MB need to do it as opposed to you worry about it. But it certainly should be, you know, submitted to for Grammy consideration. You know, it's absolutely worthy of that kind of consideration. So well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. hundred percent. Thank you. And the Leslie Bricker's tribute is beautiful. I think that's worth highlighting in the booklet, which um, I'm, I'm sure hopefully uh, listeners would have received their copy by now. But it's, it's quite a, a touching comment and a lovely photo. Personally, for me, it was just made a nice capper to... Um, the you know what he's done for projects and and the friendship that i uh, got to enjoy with him um it felt uh, absolutely fitting to this is really sort of um it spotlights the great collaboration that he and john williams had that goes back to the late 60s and um pays very properly pays tribute to, to that i think i'm so happy that leslie got to hear it thank you jason it's been a wonderful pleasure to have you here once again thank you maritza thank you john You've been a wonderful guest, and thank you so much again for sharing so much of your passion for this music. It's been a real pleasure. And Tim, thank you so much, my friend, for another awfully big adventure in podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) 
Terrific. Such a pleasure to, to have all of you here. Okay, guys. Thank you, everyone. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.